welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Bartley, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe June 11th, 2010. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. And if you're interested in participating with the Biota Podcasts, uh, and you'd like the call-in number so you can participate in the online chat or in TalkShoe, you can also go to biota.org slash podcast. Well, we're recording Friday night, 8 p.m. Pacific, back at the old time, and hopefully there'll be slightly more frequent recordings of the Biota podcast. As you may hear from my voice, I've had a slight cold, which has really become a kind of lingering pet cold uh, over the past few weeks, so we haven't had quite as frequent Biota lives as I had originally hoped for. However, we do have, I believe, Jeff Clune on the line. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Tom. How are you? Good to talk to you. So I'm not sure if you've heard the previous Biota Lives, but what we typically do is uh, some news and notes, and then we'll get into talking to you this evening. Sounds great. Terrific. So uh, the show proposed for June 28th, 8 p.m. Pacific, is on the languages of agents. And for folks who heard the uh, recently posted audio featuring Bruce Damer and Terence McKenna, this is a topic which has come back into the community. There have also been some posts on the Biota Conversations mailing list indicating none other than uh, Luke Steele at Sony Entertainment had done some development associated with intelligent agent communication. There was another fellow associated with neural networks as well. So... The discussion is really about uh, whether agents, uh, in terms of their internal and external communication, can really give benefit to the artificial life uh, developer. And this is not just a debugging tool in terms of understanding the kind of minute-by-minute development of the uh, intelligent agent in the simulation. This also uh, provides a new interface. I think... Certainly what came through in the discussion with Bruce and Terrence McKenna, and in parallel I had a similar discussion with my wife the night before about the talk that I'm going to give at Intel, was that I guess general people who look at artificial life simulations often wonder if the agents within the simulations had a language, and particularly an English or um, a human understandable language, what the information uh, that came from these simulations would actually provide. And certainly... Uh, Larry Yeager played the classic artificial life simulator in this discussion and noted that you know visual simulation had been useful up until this point with regards to Polyworld, but even the example he gave in Polyworld associated with altruism seems to lend itself to the fact that if there was either an internal uh, narrative language, that's basically agents describing what they're doing over periods of time, or uh, an external language, which is a language communicated between, I guess, the sea monkeys in the case of Polyworld, what this would actually add to the simulation. So this is going to be the topic for uh, the next Biota Live, June 28th at 8 p.m. Pacific. Another topic which has come through the Biota Conversations mailing list recently is the potential to do an artificial life documentary. And this came about because of MacHeads, which is a documentary that featured uh, Bruce Damer and his wife, uh, Galen Brandt, and also Al Lundell and Al's wife, Sun, and a wide variety of other uh, Mac enthusiasts. But the documentary was filmed in uh, not low definition so much, but not necessarily high definition. It came out on uh, Netflix and had a, a digital reception. I understand it was also displayed potentially at Cannes or other independent film festivals too. 
But the possibility for the artificial life community to record well, I don't know, extended conversations or these kind of things with relatively high quality video cameras that could probably be edited as a central source is something that came up for discussion. Thankfully, on the Biotech Conversations mailing list, we also have a couple of uh, independent documentary uh, filmmakers and artists and these kind of folk. So the discussion got quite interesting. Anyway, so if you're interested more on that, uh, the Biotech Conversations mailing list is the place to go. No plans as yet for an artificial life uh, documentary chronicling what is going on all over the world in artificial life, but certainly an interesting talking point. Folks familiar with the Biota Live podcast will remember some discussion associated with a portal at the start of this year. Unfortunately, on a personal note, I've been completely flat out with a wide variety of projects, including uh, a couple of Dick Gordon book projects, and I put quite a bit of hours into the portal uh, a couple of months ago, but my hope is to reconvene uh, with a couple of artists in the UK who had a particular interest associated with the portal probably later this month and maybe had something together in a kind of July, August time frame. So apologies that uh, more hasn't been done in that light, but uh, just, I guess, the nature of the enterprise associated with Biota. So for folks who are interested in participating this evening or in future shows, please go to biota.org slash podcast. But Jeff, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show tonight. I have been asking uh, if folks know contacts at MSU and particularly the Digital Evolution Lab uh, to come on Biota Live. And, and you, by chance, just emailed... Uh, Bruce Jamer and Jeffrey Antrella and myself uh, about a, a trip that you were having to the Bay Area. Is this is your first time on Biot Live? Would you like to give an introduction to your work and how you got interested in artificial life? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I um, I was actually out in the Bay Area when I first heard of artificial life. I was working at a dot com company in San Francisco in the early 2000s. And I listened and then read about uh, Hod Lipson's Gollum project, which uh, is fascinating. He evolved creatures in simulation and then had the designs for those creatures sent directly across to a 3D printer. And the creatures basically walked out of the printer after snapping in some motors. And uh, the idea that evolution on its own could design things that could then walk about in the real world um, was really powerful to me. Uh, I had been interested in biology before uh, in my philosophy undergrad major. And so I basically knew at that point that I really loved this technology and wanted to get involved. And so I went and did a Ph.D. Um, in computer science at Michigan State in the Digital Evolution Laboratory. And while I did work a lot on Avita in the early years, uh, I studied the evolution of altruism and evolvability and mutation rates. In the last couple of years, I've actually been um, really inspired by looking at developmental biology and abstracting and, and extracting the power of developmental biology to go from a single cell to an entire creature. So it's just a fascinating fact of nature that one fertilized cell can turn into a sperm whale or a polar bear or a tiger. And um, that little bit of self-assembly, all driven by the genome, um, really kind of drew me in. And so what I'm trying to do now in artificial life is figure out how does nature build such complex organisms? And can we figure out how that happens and get that into our artificial life simulations? And so I've been using uh, technology that we've been developing, basically taking from developmental biology and evolving artificial neural networks. And uh, that technology is called HyperNeat. That's the algorithm we use. And the class uh, of algorithms is generally called generative and developmental systems. And the idea is that you take a small genome and grow from that to a much larger, more complicated organism. And so in the last couple of years, I've been focusing on that, and that was the focus of my dissertation. 
and I'm happy to talk to you either about my Vita work or that work uh, as you're interested. Or all of the above, actually. I, I think you've already touched on a number of fascinating points. As you were talking about, Nate, we had Ken Stanley on an early Biota podcast, I think in September 2006. It sounds like you've really come come into the kind of neat fold uh, within the past couple of years, as you described. Can you characterize what's gone on with NEAT in maybe, well, the past two years that you've seen, but probably the four years since we had Ken Stanley on? Sure. So I think one of the most interesting things that happened that's happened in the NEAT community uh, lately is that NEAT went from uh, a, di- a direct encoding to a generative encoding. Uh, and I'll explain what that means. Encodings in artificial life are the way that information is stored in a genome and then the process by which that information is used to create the phenotype. And so what typically happens in uh, both artificial life and uh, evolutionary computation is that people use what's known as a direct encoding. And what that means is that every single piece of information in the genome codes for a separate part of the phenotype. And so if you think about how that, um, how that works, for example, if you were trying to evolve a table, uh, you'd have to, if you wanted to go from maybe a two-foot table to a three-foot table, you'd have to have four simultaneous mutations change the length of each one of those legs. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of tables that spill your drink. Uh, in a generative encoding system, you can store the length of table legs in one piece of information, and you can just use that information in multiple parts of the final structure, and that allows you to trivially change table heights, for example. And that's how nature does it. I mean, you don't see you know, a, an independent genomic specification for all the different trillions of parts that make me up as a human. You see a relatively compact genome on the order of about 25,000 genes, and then there's effectively a program that spins that small genome into me or a tiger. And so what's happened is that NEAT originally and still is a direct encoding. And so it's very impressive in a couple of different ways, but it still has that, that the fact that it can't scale to a brain that has millions of neurons, for example, because evolution would then have to have create a genome that intelligently specifies millions of neurons. So what Ken Stanley has done is that he has gone to developmental biology, he's studied it, he's figured out some of what, what creates his power, and he's ported that into a generative encoding version of NEAT, and that's called HyperNeat. So that's the distinction between NEAT and HyperNeat. Uh, and the idea behind HyperNeat is really fascinating. It's that the way, of the, the most common way that nature uses to create complex forms is it effectively has to try to get each one of its cells its location. So every cell in your body has to make a decision. Do I become a skin cell? Do I become an eye cell, a liver cell, or a heart cell? And one of the ways that it does that is it figures out where it is in the body and therefore knows what to become. So first comes geometry, and then comes the fate of the cell. And so in, in nature, cells can't just figure out their, their coordinates in objective X, Y, Z space. So they have to go, jump through all these hoops. They create these chemical gradients that indicate different positions in space. And then based on those gradients, they kind of figure out where they are and therefore what to become. So the insight between, behind hypernate, uh is that we can just directly give cells their location in Cartesian space whether or not that be a two-dimensional grid or a three-dimensional grid. And then based on that information, we basically have a genome that has different mathematical functions that produce patterns in the, the, the Cartesian space that determines the fate of those components. And what's nice about the math functions that are in the genome is that they can have properties that we're interested in, such as left-right symmetry 
or such as a repeating theme that you see in, say, insects and millipedes, and you can combine these different mathematical functions together to create these complicated patterns. And what's amazing, and I encourage all of your readers to do this, is that Ken Stanley and his group, they set up a website called PickBreeder, as in you're a breeder of pictures, pickbreeder.org. And you can go there and you can see this encoding, this, this generative encoding. Uh, it drives the evolution of images. And just like Dawkins' biomorphs, you pick as a user which pictures you like, and then it spits out the next generation of pictures based on the parents you've chosen. And what you can see is the real giant step forward that this specific notion of, of geometric patterning based on developmental biology produces. Because the images produced on the PickBreeder website are totally different from the images we've seen in all artificial life uh, systems before. They really look like natural and synthetic objects. They look like butterflies and bats and cars and faces and things like that. And that's a real good indication that we're on the right track in terms of creating an encoding that can generate the complexity and power of the natural world. And so what Ken did is he also figured out how to use that same encoding to evolve neural networks, which are digital models of brains. And then what I've done in my dissertation is I've demonstrated that that encoding really does a good job of creating some of the properties that we want in our brains, such as regularities. And so one of the papers that Ken and I just co-authored recently and have submitted, and it shows you all these pictures of neural patterns that are created in these brains. And it's really amazing. You get left-right symmetry, you get repeating motifs at different neurons, and you get exceptions to those rules, and all of the things that you see in nature we're now able to evolve inside of brains. And so I think that the, the switch between, you know, from need as a direct encoding to hyper need as a generative encoding is going to allow us to do what we really want to do, which is try to evolve extremely complicated bodies and brains in simulation. Well, that's fascinating. I think uh, you, you've covered a number of aspects. With regards, I mean, as, as, as in, you noted in your previous life, your, your undergraduate life, you were a philosophy major. With regards to the criticism associated with program behavior, both implicit and explicit program behavior. Do you think, I mean, obviously, the folks that would make those kind of claims are probably a good decade behind in terms of analyzing what, what is coming through artificial life. But do you think when they reach generative encoding, it will be something that they look on as just more examples of kind of humanly explicit programmed behavior rather than anything that actually gives any insight into evolution? How would you answer that kind of criticism? Well, the, the first answer I would give is to the, the field in general, irrespective of whether or not it's a direct encoding or a generative encoding. And I think that the answer to the criticism really is in the details. I like to use the metaphor of kind of a, a woodmaker's uh, shop. If you created a shop in which you, you created an assembly line and you put in a piece of wood at the beginning and you created a bunch of machines that step-by-step step will do certain manipulations to that wood, so that at the end it produces a toy boat and produces that toy boat every time or slightly different variations of that toy boat. And I don't think it's fair to say that that machine itself is creative and is coming up with a design. You bake that in. But if you, you know, set up a wood shop where you just put a bunch of tools around and put a bunch of uh, scraps of wood in a corner and you went away and you came back at the end of the day and there was a wooden duck and sometimes you came back and there was a toy boat or a toy um you know, uh, uh, a toy car, and every time you came back, you saw rocking chairs and bears and all sorts of different things, things that you never dreamed of or never conceived of, especially sometimes you came back and saw strange-looking objects that you didn't understand until you studied them for a while and realized that they were functional. In that sort of a situation, I think it's fair to say that you as the designer didn't design in 
the things that are coming out, that there's a, an additional force there, a creative force, that's producing things that are totally different for you. And so frequently in evolutionary computation, and we've seen this in Avita, the organisms do things that completely baffle us, they outsmart us, they do things that we could never even uh, conceive of, and sometimes we can't even figure out how they're doing what they're doing, and that, I think, is a great demonstration that we're not baking it in, that evolution itself is a creative force that's producing uh, things that a lot of times are better than any human engineer has come up, you know, has come up with yet. So that's pretty good proof that, that we don't know how to bake it into the system. But specifically with regard to generative encodings, I think it just takes it one step further. That a lot of the direct encoding things, you have to be very specific about what you want in the genome and what everything in the genome stands for and what it's going to produce in the final form. And so it's a little bit more... Uh, you know, uh, designed. Whereas in a generative encoding, you just let evolution come up with a genome and there's a process that produces fantastically complicated phenotype that, you know, definitely, you know, sometimes with, you know, hundreds or millions of neurons that no human has gone in and tweaked the different parameters on that. I think it's pretty clear in that case, it's even more clear that evolution is its own creative force. There's no way that we're programming that. The, the things that come out, we're not programming, programming them in. And in terms of the properties, you, you mentioned symmetry in particular. There's this notion in terms of the emerging field of simulation science that through these kind of simulations, there is direct feedback that will be given into, into biology, which seems to be a kind of narrative that, that you're following through your own research. In terms of symmetry and other properties that you could mention that have been explicitly added uh, through generative encoding and NEAT, what are we actually learning about the underlying biology with, with things like symmetry, that these things are, are so necessary uh, in terms of creating at least uh, digital organisms that we're feeling sympathetic towards? So, I mean, what are, what are the underlying kind of meta-properties that are coming through generative encoding and what does this pass back to biology? Well, I think that there's a lot of things that we're learning from generative encodings in terms of how to design things well. And what's interesting is that a lot of the same properties that engineers use uh, to design things, uh, na nature has taken advantage of. So three of the properties that I've been focusing on are regularity, and irregularity is effectively a pattern, such as the fact that your fingers all look very similar to each other. Uh, and also modularity, which is the encapsulation of functionality into a unit. So you can move those units around, reassemble them, but you don't have to, you know, everything's not entangled so that if you tweak one little thing over here, it's going to mess up all of the other modules. Uh, and then the final one is hierarchy. And so these three principles, regularity, modularity, and hierarchy, we see throughout engineered design, but we also see them in, in creatures. We see different modules such as your organs, kidneys, and, and hearts, and livers are encapsulated units. We also see modularity in the brain. We also see regularity and symmetry as, an, as a type of regularity, so that falls into that category, but also a repetition is a regularity, all the different segments of a centipede, for example. And then hierarchy as well really helps you um, kind of, in the same way that an organization is hierarchical, your brain and some parts of your body are very hierarchical. And so one of the great things about generative encodings is that we can evolve creatures in different sorts of environments and see which environments tend to produce those properties and then we can therefore study and learn maybe how in biology there were pressures to create these uh, these design forces. Very interesting, very interesting. In fact, you've perfectly e echoed a chapter that I'm working on currently. Um, oh, those properties. So I think, yeah, I think we're all coming to these kind of conclusions from different sources, but it is wonderful. Is your PhD available online for folks who are interested in checking it out? 
It is. So all of the stuff that I've been mentioning, um, both my video work and the generative encoding stuff, all of those publications are available at my website, uh, as well as my dissertation. And that, that website is uh, www.msu, which is Michigan State University, .edu slash tilde jclune. My last name is Clune, so jclune. Uh, or if you Google Jeff Clune, you'll find my website. Terrific. I'll also, uh, also include a, a link in the show notes. Oh, perfect. And I also want to let you know, if you're interested in regularity, modularity, and hierarchy, which it sounds like you are, uh, the next stop for me in my career is I'm going to work with Hod Lipson for two years, specifically looking at uh, the questions we were, just, uh, we were just talking about. So we wrote a grant together for the NSF, and they funded it. Uh, so I'll be doing a, a postdoc fellowship with him, specifically looking at generative encodings and what they tell us about the biology of the evolution of regularity, modularity, and hierarchy. So more to come on that. Yeah. No, the, the thing that interests me about those properties is that they exist from small numbers of cells through to nation states. I mean, they're, they're in fact properties which scale very well um, throughout, um, you know, throughout biology into the social sciences. I think what's particularly fascinating with these things that are coming through artificial life currently is that they are showing... Um, not necessarily fundamental truths, but at least things that are applicable at all these different resolutions and really do link the, the biological sciences and the social sciences um, with some quite striking results. So it sounds like we're, we're approaching things from different angles but coming to the same conclusion. Returning to MSU, my understanding was that the Digital Evolution Laboratory had only recently been launched. Well, what's the actual history to the Digital Evolution Laboratory? So I know that it's been around longer than I've been there. So uh, I'm finishing up my, I think, my seventh year now at Michigan State. I did a master's in philosophy there and then a PhD. Uh, so it predates me. So it's been around a little while now. But the, I think the history, if I'm getting this right, is pretty fascinating. And it basically is that Chris Adami, uh, who wrote one of the books on artificial life, I was out at Caltech, and he had a PhD student named Charles Afria, who is now the head of the Digital Life Laboratory at Michigan State. And Chris Adami and Richard Lenski, who is a uh, preeminent evolutionary biologist and set up a long-term evolution experiment that's now been going for 20 years evolving E. coli uh, in a laboratory and has had a tremendous amount of interesting results in that project. Uh, Rich Lenski started talking to Chris Adami, and Chris started basically saying, you know, you're evolving E. coli because they have fast generation times. Well, we can evolve, you know, creatures inside of a computer even faster, and you can study evolution, and you have perfect data about all of the organisms. And Rich... Um, being someone who has to, you know, has to jump through a lot of hoops to get data about his organisms, got really excited. And um, basically the, that group right there, the three of them, started working together and collaborating, which led Charles to come over to Michigan State. And, uh, and the ties have, have kept together. So uh, recently, uh, another one of my advisors, Robert Pennock, who's a philosopher, uh, Chris Adami, who's a physicist, Charles Afria, who's a computer scientist, and Rich Lenski, who's a evolutionary biologist, the four of them had a paper in Nature, and it was just a nice demonstration of the interdisciplinary work that goes on in Michigan State. The university itself is really encouraging of interdisciplinary action. So I think what happened historically is that Rich encouraged Charles to come over because he really liked the power of digital evolution, and that started the laboratory. And now the lab is rather large, uh, and we have a, a ton of really bright people that are working on a various uh, number of different projects studying evolution, both in wet lab systems and also in the digital system. And one of the great things is that we all um, meet and, and get together. So we have biologists, computer scientists, a philosopher like myself uh, in the room once in a while. 
and uh, really get everybody together. And so it's a great group of people. Yes, we had Tom Ray on Biot Live probably about four or five months ago now, and I've never seen the chat room so busy with MSU students. It was actually quite phenomenal. Um, in terms of Vida, I mean, when you certainly the history uh, of the digital evolution laboratory is fascinating, but if you approached someone with a background in artificial life and mentioned MSU, obviously Avida um, is, is the project that comes to mind almost instantly. Uh, in terms of w where Avida is currently and where it's going in the future, what, what's your sense on Avida as a project currently? Uh, well, to, to first of all, you're right. Most of the people in our, labor, in our lab uh, use Avida and study Avida, and I, I did as well. Um, but it is, you know, it's a very open-minded lab, so if you're interested in working on other things, such as generative systems for neural nets, then people are very excited about those subjects as well. Um, I think in terms of the future of Avita, it's going to keep going as it has been. And what I mean by that is that every new graduate student that comes into the lab or new professor that, that becomes a collaborator in the lab typically is fascinated by some aspect of evolutionary biology. And then to study that, they have to implement that functionality in Avita. So, for example, I wanted to study the evolution of altruism, and so I implemented some of that. Uh, in, I, I changed Avita to allow altruism to emerge so I could study it. And I also wanted to study the evolution of mutation rates, and um, that helped us teach us a fair amount about uh, evolutionary biology, and so the biologists became interested in that. We had a paper in a biology journal there. And other people in my lab implemented parasites, so they have co-evolutionary arms races between hosts and parasites, which is something that's been inspired by Tom Ray's work. We've also had sexual reproduction that allows us to study the uh, what effect sexual versus asexual recombination has on organisms, as well as when sex tends to evolve. We even have avidians now um, moving around inside the grid, and, and we have new students that have tons of projects that they want to implement. So, for example, just the other day, somebody was proposing having avidians defend territories to study the formation of groups. So with every new student, they implement new functionality that allows new studies of new phenomena, which means that the overall platform, which is free for anybody to use, just has more and more complexity that allows you to, you know, either shut all that complexity down and focus on one thing or throw it all into the soup and see what happens. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, touching on both altruism and uh, sexual behavior, I noticed your paper on kin selection, the rise and fall of kin cheaters. How intelligent does an agent need to be in order to display altruism? Uh, the short answer is that it doesn't need to be intelligent at all in terms of any conventional definition of it, intelligence in terms of something that has a brain. Uh, we know from biology, in fact, a lot of the work in that paper and other work that I've done on altruism is based on uh, single-celled organisms. So we know that there are certain E. coli, uh, or the, sorry, there are certain species of single-celled organisms, I'm not, I forget it now if they are E. coli, that will actually kill themselves to protect their kin. Uh, they're called callicinogenic bacteria. Uh, and there are slime molds, for example, that will sacrifice themselves to basically build a stalk to allow their brethren to, you know, climb to the top of the stalk and jump off in the hopes that they'll find food in a different part of the, the terrain. And so there are all of these organisms that don't have any neurons, that don't have any brains. They're very, very simple on the scale of complexity in life, but yet they show uh, altruistic behavior and they've become model systems for studying the evolution of altruism. So we see altruism in Avida and we see it in single-celled organisms and then we see it all the way up the complexity chain of life.
I mean, certainly with your philosophy background, you understand that the popular use of altruism actually embodies slightly more than just dying at particular stages in the life cycle. I mean, certainly altruism, I'm not sure how it's actually used now in biology. Certainly Dawkins uh, and, and similar evolutionary biologists use it with far larger creatures um, than single-celled organisms. So in terms of the kind of actual linguistic use of the term altruism, do you find it philosophically problematic that, you know, when you describe altruism in primates, you're describing something that's very cognizant, yet here when you're describing altruism, you're really just describing some kind of biological death which isn't really sensed or cognizized by the single-celled organisms? Uh, I mean, I don't think that anybody who studies altruism in biology would have any problem with the definition uh, that is typically used. It's a pretty well-set definition of what altruism is, and that is that you that any entity that incurs a, a net cost to itself to help out another entity is performing altruism. That's the basic definition. And that definition does not in any way require uh, cognitive processing or thinking or the ability to dwell on whether or not uh, it wants to conduct altruism. So a lot of the canonical papers on altruism happen in slime molds and they happen in yeast, and these are papers in all the top journals of biology. And uh, Dawkins himself, uh, I don't think would have any problem with it. I'm thinking through the books that he's written to figure out uh, whether or not he uses altruism for very simple organisms. And, and at a minimum, he uses it in terms of a lot of the uh, the insects, which, you know, don't have the cognitive capability of, of primates. Um, but I, I can almost guarantee he would have no problem with single cell. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I can see the, the use of the term. I think it's probably, when it, certainly when... But I think even in insects, it is appealing to something slightly more. I mean, this is very interesting. So taking a single-celled organism that dies at a particular point in its life uh, and attributing it to altruism in terms of the, the evolution of the organism or these kind of things, the actual act of dying in terms of the representation of its kin, I mean, could it just die at that point anyway? What What is the characteristic of altruism that's particularly critical in that example? So the, the, the calicinogenic bacteria, which are the ones that the Kin Cheater paper is modeled after, these are organisms that uh, at some point in time they start making a chemical which is toxic, and they build up and fill their entire cell with that chemical until they burst. And when they burst, that toxic chemical spills out into the environment. And their kin have an immunity to that chemical. And so their kin don't die, and all of the ones that aren't related to them do die, and that leaves all this food for their kin. And so in that case, it's not just that the single-celled organism happens to die at a certain point. It is actively starting a process that will imminently lead to its death. And the only benefit we can figure out in terms of why that would happen is that it's doing it for altruistic purposes to benefit its kin. And even if somebody might be skeptical about whether or not that's a true explanation in biology, we modeled just that part of it in Avida, and we found that the Avidians do exactly the same thing. If you give them the opportunity, they are more than happy to commit suicide to uh, kill off the enemies of their kin and therefore help their kin. And I don't think that there's uh, any other interpretation of that kind of phenomenon other than it is you know, it's not consciously doing something altruistic, but it just so happens that this behavior has emerged 
And then because that behavior is selected for according to kin selection theory, and there's an evolutionary pressure for it, and evolution therefore encourages and maintains that behavior. Yes, again, playing devil's advocate here. I mean, I think the things like food supply, also overpopulation, I mean, there are a wide variety of pressure factors which could create exactly the same behavior. But you are, it, it is an interesting point with regards to the release of chemicals. And I think really all I'm doing here is playing devil's advocate akin to the kind of stuff when, uh, you know, my experiences in terms of writing in, in biology texts and these kind of things that you get very critical dialogue from uh, from certain parts of the biological community associated with these kind of attributions of altruism. In terms of your background with philosophy, there are a number of philosophers uh, that end up doing artificial life. Obviously, Mark Bedeau is probably the, um, the standard bearer uh, for this. Where do you see artificial life impacting philosophy, and do you see yourself doing uh, philosophy in the future that is based on your artificial life studies currently? It's a great question. Um, so the, another, I think that what artificial life has done is it has challenged a lot of our intuitions, partly along the exact lines that you were just discussing. You know, can we attribute um, real the descriptions that we typically reserve for more complicated creatures? Can we attribute those things to the creatures in these digital simulations? You know, are these things alive, and is this a simulation of evolution? or is it an instantiation of evolution? And so Robert Pennock, who's my advisor, is a, a, another philosopher, along with Mark Bedeau, who's very active in the artificial life community, and he has written um, you know, papers extensively on this, this very this question of, you know, does artificial life help us figure out the difference between simulation and instantiation? And he comes down, and I agree with him on the side, that this is truly an instantiation of evolutionary processes, once you kind of figure out what you mean by simulation and instantiation. So I think, I don't necessarily know that the experiments in artificial life are going to inform philosophy. I think that when experiments start informing things, that tends to just be biology or science or computer science. But I think that a lot of times, you know, such as the nature of the human mind, that it becomes curious about something when it starts thinking hard about that and when it gets, you know, suggested, you know, suggestions from uh, a new idea or a new discipline. So the field of artificial life has sparked a lot of interesting philosophical thinking uh, and I think it will continue to going forward. I don't necessarily know if I'm going to be um, specifically targeting work that's purely philosophical as opposed to experimental. I've kind of become very um, passionate about science and I'm really enjoying being a scientist. But life is long, and who knows where things will take me. Certainly, certainly. It's interesting in terms of is, is it possible for uh, artificial life really to make an impact back into philosophy? And certainly I think of... Nick Bostrom's work here as, as a philosopher that really needs uh, active, uh, an active relationship with artificial life practitioners in order to, um, I don't know, instigate some criticism or at least some critical thought. In terms of actually getting artificial life back into the philosophical community, I mean, uh, you've, you've mentioned two uh, philosophers that are doing that in some uh, light. I mean, the discussion that you've given so far relates um, a, a lot to... Uh, evolutionary biology, but do you think there are other elements uh, in artificial life which can have an impact on philosophy? Well, I think that one obvious uh, way that it will impact philosophy hugely is uh, if we can and when we are able to evolve the kind of complexities in the natural world in silica or in simulation. So 
so once we're evolving creatures that, you know, in every way that we are able to tell, act like, you know, a dog seems to have emotions, seems to have fear, seems to sense pain and run around the world and make decisions, then I think there's a lot of interesting ethical questions that will be raised by that. Is it okay to have those creatures be harmed? Is it okay just to turn off the, the simulation at that point? What is the ethical nature of those things? And I think it also raises a lot of interesting issues in the philosophy of mind in terms of consciousness. So one of the most magical things that has happened in the history of the universe is that at some point rocks and atoms started to feel. Started to feel pain, sense color, taste chocolate, have a sensory experience in response to, you know, atoms bouncing around. And we still have very little idea how that happened and how to think about that. And so if we can start to get creatures in silico that are able to do that, then I think it can close down a lot of what I consider to be relatively ridiculous debates in philosophy in terms of, oh, maybe there's some special substance or some special molecules built in humans that allow this sort of magic to happen. I think that if we can get it to happen in silico and it doesn't, then we can basically eliminate a lot of those kind of hypotheses and kind of recognize that there's a certain level at which complexity emerges and that these kind of, uh, you know, feelings and sensory experiences supervene over uh, the complex arrangement of, of functioning parts. And that's my hypothesis for how that kind of consciousness emerges. But at a minimum, I think that, that kind of achievement, once we get really complicated artificial life worlds, then that will raise a whole host of philosophical questions. But obviously, that's way down the road. Certainly, and I think there are also political implications associated with this. I mean, certainly, we've had uh, biologists on both live previously. I've talked about just what humans do to other humans in kind of society, the notions of war and these kind of things, which are still very current, even aspects of starvation and these kind of things, which exist even in the U.S. And the notion that once we have these simulated entities and we start attributing or at least even discussing life, it also puts into perspective the way humans interact with other humans. So on a number of levels, there, there is a great degree of, uh, of philosophical feedback. And I think it, it's very encouraging to have people such as yourself with a background in philosophy coming into artificial life with the, with the possibility that you can uh, go back into philosophy and take some of this knowledge as well. So talking a little bit more about NEAT, are you familiar with uh, Numenta and Jeff Hawkins? Uh, company Numenta specifically? I am, but I just want to mention, you, you happen to spark an interesting thought in my head that I want to mention before really? we switch to that subject. And that is that um, another way that artificial life can really spark our imaginations and cause us to think is that, and this gets back to Chris Langton's famous quote, that with artificial life you can study life as it can be, not life as it is. And so you can study different instantiations of life and that can really kind of uh, help us see that there were different possibilities. So, for example, and this is just an example off the cuff that's related to what you talked about in terms of other disciplines, political science, sociology, and whatnot. You know, one of the bedrock principles of humanity is kinship. You know, all a lot of our, meta, uh, our metaphors are even like, you know, I treat him like a brother or a sister, or he's like a father to me, and that we are really, really uh, in touch with being, um, you know, thinking of people that are related to each other as, as it's some people that you're going to be very altruistic towards. But I've done a lot of work in a video that shows that there are a lot of different ways to implement the same kind of strategy that's under the hood behind kin selection in terms of genes that can recognize copies of themselves, altruistic copies of themselves in other organisms. And what that does is it suggests a whole bunch of worlds in which there are different kind of alliances that aren't based on kinship but are based on something else. 
like a genetic marker that allows you to detect if there's an altruism gene in another creature. So it just it, it, it kind of sparks the mind in terms of interesting ways that society could be structured, not along kinship lines, but along different implementations of altruism. So that's just an example. Yeah, so you get on... No, sorry, no, let's, let's continue on this thought, because I noticed that you contacted Jeffrey Ventrella together with me, and his stuff uh, in Gene Pool on Racism is exactly this point, that once you start establishing things other than kinship, you can get a whole series of really quite strange relationships and then build power structures from that. So just, just agreeing with you. But returning to, uh, returning to Numenta and Neat specifically, um, when I'm interviewed periodically about the artificial life community and folks raise uh, Numenta's work, I always attribute it very closely to what uh, Ken Stanley has been able to do in Neat. Only one is obviously a closed company and the other is uh, a very rich open source project. Do you think this is a... Do you think this is a fair um, similarity, or do you really see what Ken Stanley is doing currently is moving in different directions from what uh, Jeff Hawkins was doing with Numenta? Well, I think there are similarities and there are differences. So in, the, in terms of the similarities, both Ken Stanley and, and Jeff Hawkins are trying to create models of, of brains inside of computers and understand how brains work, how, uh, artific you know, how intelligence works. And they're also interested in applying um, model, you know, basically artificial neural networks, which are digital models of brain, to solving problems. So in that sense, they're similar. But in another uh, way, they're fundamentally different, and that is that Jeff Hawkins' group, and I, I love their work, I think it's very fascinating, um, it li lies with the computational neuroscientists. And the idea there is that we're going to study the brains that we have, like the brains in us and, and rats and, and all the mammals and vertebrates, and we're going to figure out how they work and then we're going to come from the top down. We're going to study how they work, and then we're going to implement as much as we know about how they work into a digital brain. And then the hope is that it will start to be able to do interesting things, maybe teach us about biology, and maybe solve some problems for us. And so that's the kind of what I consider to be the top-down approach. Ken Stanley and the neuroevolutionary um, uh, community, of which I am a part, uh, has, a, has a different take, which is also valid, which is let's see what happens when we try to build intelligence from the ground up. So we're going to start with a very, very simple brain, a couple neurons, and then we're going to allow evolution to create whatever it wants. It can create modules, symmetries, hierarchies, and whatnot, and it can create a functioning brain that hopefully will get more and more complex, and therefore evolution will be able to tune all the parameters to try to figure out how to make that brain either teach us about biology or solve an interesting task. And so um, they're really, you know, they're, they complement each other, and they, they, they uh, both have solved a lot of very impressive problems, but they really come at it from a different direction. So the neuroevolution work, you know, allows evolution to tinker with all of the different parts of a brain. I don't think Jeff Hawkins uses evolutionary algorithms, although he does, I, I know he does have learning algorithms, but they tend to be hand-coded learning algorithms based on what we know of learning in complex brains. Yes, I mean, certainly, certainly NEAT circa 2006, I think, was a lot closer to what Jeff Hawkins was initially proposing versus where it is currently. In terms of the contemporary NEAT community, do you get a sense of how large it is and the kind of diversity of applications that are going into NEAT and hyper-NEAT? Yeah, I think the community is extremely large. Uh, and I think um, part of that is because the science behind it is very good. And I also think part of it is because Ken has done such a great job of creating an open source community. So recently, Ken gave a tutorial at Gecko in which he was just talking about the community itself. I think there are at least 
10, if not maybe two or three times that number of open source implementations of Meet that are available on the web. Some of them are very, very well, made, well and actively maintained. Um, and there's also at almost every evolutionary comp, uh, computation conference I go to, there will be many Meet papers. So there's a lot of people out there academically studying it. And then there are different variations of it that keep getting invented. So there's Hypernet, which I mentioned, and there are a lot of other spin-offs of Meet. So it's really kind of, I think it's safe to say it's probably the leading neuroevolution algorithm. Uh, and I think that the community base is strong. And for those listeners out there that are interested in kind of becoming a part of this community, it's very easy to do. There's a neat email list at Yahoo. And if you Google that, you'll find it. It's the neat users group. And it's, it's one of the better listers I know of in terms of being very active. If you post a question, there are tons of people there that will give you, uh, you know, usually give you a great answer. And there are lots of extended discussions of fundamental issues in, in the artificial life community, such as some of, the, some of the conversations we've been having, and also really detailed minutia, like my experiment's not, not working, here's my data, what do you guys think? And then people will have suggestions for how to tweak something in the, in the code to make the experiment work better. So it's a very vibrant uh, community. I've been, it's been a pleasure to be a part of it. Terrific, terrific. Now, when, when I talked with Ken four years ago, the Holy Grail was a commercial game, and I know aspects of the Neat community have been tailoring it specifically uh, to game development to make, I guess, smarter enemies and probably also uh, smarter allies as well. Are there actually commercial games now that are using Neat? Yeah, there are. There are two of them. There's uh, one called Nero, uh, which is effectively um, you training a bunch of soldiers, and each one of the soldiers has a, uh, a neural network that's being evolved. And then there's another one called, I think it's called Galactic Arms Race, and it uses evolutionary technology to evolve the look of the weapon, so the different particles as they shoot out, the patterns they form. And that one's cool because as users are using the weapons, the ones that they pick up, tend to be the ones that uh, do well in, in the evolutionary algorithm that's running behind the scenes. So the more people use weapons, the more you see similar weapons kind of uh, spawning off in the world. And the ones that everyone thinks are boring and they don't use, they tend to drop. Those ones die out, evolutionarily speaking. So both of those games are out there, and you can download them and you can play them. Terrific, terrific. But in terms of like studios like THQ or EA or these kind of things, is there any sense that they're also part of the neat community and there may be potential for uh, like a, a standard bought in, in stores commercial game to contain neat in the future? So I, I don't know that any commercial outfits are actually using neat, but I do know that Torsten Real and his studio uh, are, have done a lot of uh, evolutionary algorithms in games. I think they worked on... Um, uh, some of the big blockbuster games and football games. And um, and I, I, when he started out, his intention was to use a lot of evolutionary technologies, but I also know that he's, he's blended a lot, that with a lot of hand-coded stuff, and it's proprietary, so we don't really know what's going on under the hood. Um, but I think that if people are interested, he's probably the closest thing to evolutionary algorithms driving the AI in real commercial games that I know of to date. You've been at MSU for at least the past five years. You've been part of the artificial life community through really an apex point uh, for, for that length of time or maybe even longer. What have you seen change in the artificial life community over this time? 
It's a great question. And as you mentioned, I've only been a part of it for uh, roughly seven years now. And so right. it's, okay. it's five to seven. Um, I lose track myself. Um, and so I haven't been part of it for, you know, the 10 to 20 years to really see what's changed. And so the things that I'm starting to notice, I don't know if they're new to the community or they're just new to me discovering them within the community. But I think that um, one thing that's really interesting is that as new technologies come out, there's kind of a known curve of excitement. Typically, when they first come out, everyone gets extremely excited about them and, you know, predicts that in five years they're going to do something wild and amazing. And then they fall into what's known as the trough of disillusionment. And that means that, okay, there are all these grandiose predictions and the technology was supposed to do all these great things, but now it hasn't really done that. And so people become bored and frustrated and start to denigrate the field. And obviously, one classic example of that is, is artificial intelligence. So it had the first claims people thought we'd have conscious entities talking to us and robot butlers and all, you know, within five to ten years. And then it you know, basically fell off a cliff in terms of public enthusiasm. And now everyone's very skeptical. And then what everyone knows is that coming, coming out of the trough of disillusionment tends to be a very, very slow, flat plane. You continuously make um, successes, but there's no huge leap forward such that there's nothing to really get excited about on any given day. You just slowly kind of march out of there. And so I think what's happening is in the artificial life community is that we're going through the same phase, that back in the day of Carl Sims and some of the first things, it looked so amazing that it seemed like with a couple more years of work, we were going to basically have, you know, an entire ecosystem of evolved features within uh, computer simulations. But it turns out it's much harder uh, than we thought to kind of evolve the kind of complex ecosystems of creatures that we see in the natural world. And so I think the community has gone through and is kind of uh, in some of the trough of disillusionment. It's uh, a lot of departments in computer science are not hiring people in evolution and computation and artificial life. It's a lot harder to get a job. It's a lot harder to get funding. And the conferences, um, I, I, from my observation, they tend to be shrinking a little bit. Um, but I think that we will come out of it like all other fields. We'll, we'll make the slow march out. And I think we are making the slow march out. I've noticed a lot of what I consider to be tremendous breakthroughs, even in the last couple of years, that really are pushing the field forward. But I think more than anything, what I'm noticing is uh, a call to arms and a quest. And that quest is that we want to start working on what we initially set out to work on, and that is to evolve extremely complicated organisms that kind of surprise and delight us in the same way that natural organisms do. And so for a while, we've been like the artificial intelligence community historically did. We were taking, uh, you know, taking off small projects and focusing on them. But some people are starting to realize that it's time to be ambitious again and to try to kickstart extremely creative and impressive and complex processes uh, to get coevolutionary arms reaches and, and niches being built on top of niches and, you know, the kind of open-ended evolution that we know is going to happen eventually, but that we want to be able to start so that we can study it. Yes, in, in your narrative, are you familiar with Dave Kerr's AI Planet that would have been created, I guess, in the late 90s? There are a couple of other similar examples of artificial life simulations. AI Planet had an extended lifetime mainly because the users could actually submit their own creatures, and some of the creatures were quite aesthetically pleasing, but they did live in the simulated environment and kind of evolve. So I think there was certainly, there was certainly a hump with things like AI Planet and a lot of the uh, multiple agent, multiple agent type simulations that occurred in the 
late 90s, which really built the simulation community, obviously things like Steve Grant's Creatures and other things like that. So I probably see a couple more humps, but certainly there have been an equal number of troughs. You said in your introduction that you're interested in linking some of the aspects with, I guess, what's now popularly being called wet artificial life with soft artificial life. This sounds like something that you see as really being a breakthrough in the next few years. Can you kind of predict what direction you think this this research will take? By wet artificial life, do you mean the stuff that Craig Vettner is doing? No, not so much. Well, I guess probably previously what Mark Badeau uh, and the Flint guys were doing, Steen Rasmussen et al., but really it it kind of now characterizes the broader potential of actually doing a lot of what has been done previously in software, uh, in biology in some form. So it's in that sense yet to be written um, specifically. Craig Ventner obviously has been very good at um, doing press releases and these kind of things, but there seems to have been at least seven to ten years worth of research being done by the guys at Flint and elsewhere on the potential of the being wet artificial life. So it's really kind of more an emerging field. But you were describing perhaps grounding it more in what you were saying, you were talking about actually learning uh, from biology in terms of implementing uh, soft artificial life specifically. So what direction do you see that going in the next few years? So I think that uh, as we learn more and more about biology, we'll be able to port uh, that knowledge over into artificial life. So for example, a lot of the work that I summarize in terms of um, understanding how developmental biology works and creates the patterns that it does and, and getting that into a life, obviously that can't happen until the developmental biologists figured out how nature has built those complicated forms. And so right now, biology is going through one of the most exciting periods that it ever has, probably since the time of Darwin, in terms of just the, the sheer amount of data uh, that we're learning about how genetic regulatory networks work and how all of the genes produce and control um, organisms and all the, the bioinformatics that's going on in addition to the synthetic biology that allows you to take as many genes out as you want, add genes from different species, and see what happens. And so um, I think that the biology, the rate of discovery is tremendous. And, you know, every not everything that they learn, but a lot of what they learn about how these creatures work, we can port over into artificial life. And the same is true in terms of neuroscience. The neuroscience technology is, you know, is going almost as fast as the the genetic sequencing and synthesizing. So a lot of the neuroimaging, a lot of the ability to look at single neurons and to map the entire brain and figure out where every single neuron connects to, as well as how individual neurons work. And all of the knowledge that we're gaining from those things can be ported into artificial life. And so I think that, you know, that will be, uh, you know, a huge boon in terms of uh, evolving complex forms. I mean, if you could just imagine how powerful it would be to have a simulation of a vertebrate brain, a rat brain or whatnot, that actually worked similar to a rat. I mean, you could learn so much about how uh, brains work and how they're designed, and you could tweak different neural connections and change different modules and see what effect that has on a simulated rat. And if we, you know, as we understand those things, it's going to obviously be easier to try to evolve things that share similar properties or that... Um, can create brains that are different, but, uh, you know, have some of the same underlying components and power. So that describes the flow of information from biology to artificial life. But I also think that there's a flow backwards from artificial life to biology. And one of the great things that artificial life has to offer biology is very, very controlled experiments. 
so for example, the, the debate that we were talking about in terms of altruism, you know, as you mentioned, in the hallucinogenic bacteria, that's an extremely complicated world, and you don't know exactly uh, what's going on. There could be an alternate explanation that you're not aware of, such as some sort of a, a resource in the environment that's triggering this explosion of the organism. But in artificial life, uh, we can set up extremely controlled experiments. So I can get rid of all of those kind of food resources issues. I can set up an experiment in which they are, um, you know, sacrificing themselves to help their kin. And then I can change one small aspect of the experiment, such as, you know, don't allow the altruism to be applied to kin or don't allow the organisms to explode or et cetera. And by flicking that switch on and off, I can see the behavior turn on and turn off. And if that's true, then we know that the only thing that was different between those two setups is a certain variable. And therefore, you know that that variable is the causal explanation. You know, that explains the, the, the behavior because nothing else is different. And that is very difficult to do, if not impossible, in a wet lab system, but we can do that routinely in artificial life. So in a couple of my papers, we've done that. The Ken Cheetah's paper is one. There's also a paper where we did the evolution of mutation rates. We did an experiment that you couldn't do in biology, and it really was a smoking gun that said, yes, it is this variable, this aspect of the system, which is driving, you know, either behavior A or behavior B. And that kind of clarity coming out of A-life is a wonderful thing uh, because biology is, is obviously inherently messy. So I think both of those um, flows of information will continue. Uh, we'll be able to port the lessons from biology, but then we'll also be able to kind of do definitive tests uh, of some of the theories that the biologists are proposing uh, to be able to help them kind of solidify some of their, their guesses. Well, I know we're kind of concluding here, but a thought just came to me. Do you think humans die through altruism? No. I mean, I think some do. Some humans sacrifice themselves for other, but I don't think altruism is the explanation for the reason we die. I think one of the, I think one of the best explanations for why we tend to die is that uh, selection pressures tend to be weak at the end of life. And sometimes there are trade-offs between, you know, doing really well and courting um, the members of the opposite success successfully when you're young and uh, living, you know, at two, to be 80 or 90. And there's a, there's a host of great uh, theories for why we die, but I don't think altruism is uh, one of the plausible explanations. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of taking it from the single cell to the human um, in terms of the attribution. But look, Jeff, you've given a lot of food for thought. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on BioDelight this evening. And please don't be a stranger. We have a number of philosophers and a number of biologists that kind of wander into the uh, Biota Live conversations, and you certainly uh, picked a very good case to appear on future Biota Lives uh, describing similarly interesting topics. So it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity to chat with you this evening. Real pleasure. Uh, thank you. I enjoyed it tremendously, and I would look forward to any future conversations you'd be interested in. And are you going to be at A-Life 12? I'm not. I'm going to be at Gecko, which is roughly at the same time, but uh, is over in Portland as opposed to uh, Denmark. But I have been at a Life in the past, and I also have been to the European Conference on Artificial Life, so I'm very much interested in and in, in, in will be at future ones. Terrific. Yeah, there seems to be a, a strong artificial life contingent at the Gecko conferences, so I, I know a few of our listeners at least will be attending Gecko, and uh, we'll no doubt keep an eye out for you. Yeah, there's an artificial life at track at Gecko, actually, so there's that, that contingent. But in general, the communities are very, very... Um, you know, they overlap a lot. There's a lot of people with similar interests. 
And folks listening in, I'll certainly include Jeff's site in the show notes, so uh, you can contact Jeff uh, directly following the show if you have any follow-up questions. The next show will be recorded June 28th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Languages of the Agents, as described in the start of the show. Well, Jeff, thank you once again for the chance to chat, and thanks for folks for listening in. Good night.